Good morning. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be back today. It was supposed to just be one McRae today. I didn't know my brother Rob was going to be here. He's squeezing us in between his services at Woodmont. Um, Michael is on a silent retreat at Gethsemane Convent in um, Burton's Convent in, in Kentucky. He goes up there a couple of times a year, so that's why he's not with us. So, so it's just me today, and it's, it's great to be here. I was just commenting to my dad before class that I'll be 56 on Tuesday, and it's still awkward for me to stand in front of a room where my dad is sitting because for all of my life, whenever I would go to a setting where he was, he was speaking, and it was our job as the kids to be setting up the old slide projectors and putting up the screen and running the electrical cords and getting everything ready. And so to be in a setting now where, where I'm speaking with, uh, with my dad and with Rob as well, the two scholars in our family in the audience is always a little intimidating, but uh, it's a joy to be here. This summer has been an amazing experience for me, and I just, while Michael's not here, I just want to say thank you to all of you for <coughs> inviting him, uh, to Michael for inviting me to participate and to be a part of this. When he told me about this class, I never imagined that 100 plus people would show up week after week for 13 weeks <laughs> to hear this story. Uh, usually, at least in my experience, it's smaller groups, different settings, and after the first two or three weeks, people start to drift away because it's an uncomfortable story. It's a story many people don't want to hear. And so uh, for all of you to keep coming back week after week to standing out in the hallway and to standing down the, the sides and, and packing in here has just been a, a delight for me, and we're so grateful to have this opportunity. It's obviously something we're passionate about. I know that passion comes through sometimes in an intensity and the conversation and, and uh, that's driven by a number of things, one of which is the time constraint. We just feel like there's so much to say that often we push really, really hard. Uh, so next week is a week for questions. Uh, we have taken the whole session next week, provided I get through today on time and I'm gonna do my best. So I would encourage you write write down your questions if you want to. Feel free to send them to us ahead of time. I can give you my email address, Michael's email address at the end of class give us time to think over them, but you don't need to. Just bring them on us next week. I can't promise you that it will be Q&A. We'll at least do the Q part. I don't know how good the answers will be, <laughs> but we'll do our best to share what we know about the things that are concerned to you. It's a time for you to push back. If there are things that you've heard that are troublesome to you that you don't like, uh, don't understand, don't agree with, we're welcome to, to be engaged in dialogue. Um, but we want to have a, a break at this point to deal with all the questions that we've been putting off and putting off. And, uh, and so that's going to be our plan for next week. I think it was last week at the end of the session, someone came up to Michael afterwards and said, I've done a little bit of research on you on the internet. And it looks like you've got quite a broad set of interests and skills. Michael's published quite a bit and lectured in various places. And so he asked him a very pointed question. He said, do you ever take this passion that you have for injustice and for what's going on in Israel and Palestine um, and in Northern Ireland and the skills that you've developed and apply that to anything here in the U.S. or are you just involved over there? And the answer to that question is yes for Michael. He's not going to say much about this himself, but Michael's second book that he, he published is called um, Where the River Bends. Uh, considerations on forgiveness in the life of prisoners. Michael worked for a number of years as a, a voluntary cha volunteer chaplain at Riverbend Maximum Security Prison and wrote his master's thesis about that experience. And he's very engaged in issues of social injustice, racial injustice, uh, especially uh, prison reform and justice in the prison system. Both of my sons who have spent considerable amount of time in Palestine, in the West Bank, 
engaged in that issue have brought that experience and that passion back to say, what do we do with that concern and with that interest here? And so my oldest son is very involved in issues of food injustice and, and uh, racial injustice and, and uh, issues related to how we get our food, how we grow our food, how we distribute our food. Um, and that's how he's used his training in reconciliation and you've seen the fruits of Michael's work. So it's been a real joy for me after spending all of my life really dealing with, with concern. Hey Judy, come on in. Ro Judy, Rob's up here. Um, uh, concerns of, uh, just call her out in front of everybody. <laughs> uh, concerns of, of rural poverty and health care for the poor uh, to see how uh, my, my kids are branching out and doing, doing more. So um, with that little introduction, we're going to touch on the, the final, final status issues today, finish our conversation on water, talk some then about borders and refugees and hopefully Jerusalem before we're done today. So remember last time we talked about the surface water system, Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River. We talked about the water uh, distribution <laughs> inequities, the average consumption of water by uh, Jewish Israelis is 183 liters per uh, person per day, United Nations statistics, the amount rec minimum amount recommended by the World Health Organization, 100 liters per day, average Palestinian in the West Bank gets 73, average Palestinian not connected to the water grid, 20 to 50 liters, and in Gaza, 70 to 90 liters, but about 90% of the water in Gaza is not potable, it's not safe anymore. We talked about how flowers are growing in the desert in Gaza as a result of the use of water, uh, the home of my friend and colleague Sodi Namer in Gaza. I don't think I got to this picture last time. This is a swimming pool in the West Bank settlement of Ariel, one of the largest and most controversial settlements in the West Bank. You can see the way most of the West Bank looks out in the distance. It's a beautiful area in the, in the spring. It's, it's green. This is a summertime picture. Rolling hills, rocks, olive orchards, olive groves. But you don't see this and certainly not in any Palestinian village. Yards that are irrigated and manicured and, and, and swimming pools. This is in a Jewish settlement in the West Bank, the settlement of Ariel, and it highlights the contrast between what the Middle East looks like and how most people live in the Middle East and what's happened in Israel as a result of a desire to live as Europeans in the Middle East. And I think that's one of the fundamental issues that's facing the state of Israel as it moves forward, is this desire to live as Europeans with the, the European lifestyle, the Western lifestyle, in an arid climate in the Middle East and trying to use water resources to have yards and mow grass and have swimming pools in areas where there's just not enough water for the people. Just this week, a headline uh, related to what we've been talking about, this was from June 23rd, uh, the West Bank is in full crisis mode as Israel continues to use water as a weapon uh, and to cut back on uh, water to the West Bank. Uh, the mayor of one of the Palestinian areas says, water is running under our ground. They're on top of one of the most uh, significant water aquifers in the West Bank. Water is running under our ground while our taps run dry. The people are getting angry. They won't continue to accept this. And this quote captures, I think, a lot of what we've been talking about when we're talking about the conflict and terrorism and what's going on right now among the Palestinians. There is this growing level of despair and frustration. We won't accept this any longer. We don't have access to our land. We don't, they're, they're uh, uprooting our olive trees. They won't let us use our own water. They're stealing our water and selling it back to us at, at uh, many multiples of the cost that the water is sold to Israelis. We just won't continue to accept this. Well, when you don't have a military, <laughs> you have no way to fight back by conventional means, you begin to look for unconventional means. 
Many in the international community, many in the Palestinian community, hope that that will be through nonviolent resistance, through an organized nonviolent resistance. But unfortunately, it also erupts in violence as well. <clears throat> so from this same article, again, they highlight this difference in water. I really put these in here so that you'll have them if you access the PowerPoint slides uh, where Michael puts them on the internet. Really interesting graphic looking at the flow of water from the uh, mountain aquifers through the Jordan River, how the water is allocated. I'm not going to spend time with that. It'll be on the slide set if you want to look at it. And just so you know, this is not just coming from Palestinian sources. It, the major Israeli um, uh, humanitarian uh, human rights organization, Betselem, Betselem is the first two words of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, or uh, no, it's, it's not. It's in his image. It's not in, not in the beginning. It's in his image, but it's taken from from Genesis. Uh, but it's uh, the name of a, a major human rights organization that, that deals with human rights in the West Bank, uh, in the Palestinian areas. And they note that there's undeniable discrimination in the way that water resources are allocated. So this is what we often see as we drive around the West Bank. All of the Palestinian communities, homes, have big water tanks on the roof. Uh, and that's to collect water because the water is not always running. So when the water is running, when Israel opens up the, the, the spigots and lets water run into the Palestinian communities, they fill up these tanks up on top of their homes so that they will have water when the water is shut off. And often is shut off for long periods of time. So some have said, is there not just not enough water? This graphic from the United Nations says that there's more average rainfall in Ramallah in the West Bank than there is in London. And we all know how much rainfall there is in London. <laughs> But when you look at what happens is the water is stored in the aquifers and then through the um, uh, appropriation of water resources, the control of the supply, the obstruction of development, and the destruction of infrastructure, you can see there's much more water that goes to the Israeli side of the line than to the Palestinian side of the line. So you can read the fine print of that on the internet. So that's the basic story about water. Very brief overview of what uh, many believe is one of the critical issues in this ongoing struggle. As we've tried to make the case, this is not a struggle primarily about ethnicity or heritage or religion. This is a fight over land and water uh, and national identity. So as we talk about the borders of Israel, one of the five final status issues, it's important to remember two considerations. Number one, Israel has no constitution. We often say Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East, but Israel has never written a constitution. And there's a very real reason for that. You write a constitution, you have to make a statement about human rights. You have to make a statement about who's in and who's out and who has rights. That's a fundamental part of a constitution. So Israel's never written a constitution because they don't know what to do with the 20% of their population that are Palestinian Arabs. And they don't know what to do with all of these people whose land they occupy and who they control. So they don't have a constitution and they've never declared their borders. They have never said in an official legal document, this is what we recognize as the borders of the state. So if you look at a United Nations map, just to remind us, you have Lebanon on the north. This is the accepted border here. This is the Golan Heights, which Israel annexed in the 1980s and now considers to be a part of Israel, even though the international community does not recognize that this was a part of Syria. You have the Jordan River, a border going all the way down with Jordan to a lot in the south. And then this line across the Negev Desert, separating the Negev from uh, Sinai and Egypt, Gaza, and what we call the Green Line, or the 1949 Armistice Line uh, that uh, delineates the West Bank. These borders have never been recognized by Israel. They're recognized by the international community, but Israel does not recognize their borders because 
as everyone knows, they want more of the land. So they've already taken that with the Golan. They've taken that by annexing Jerusalem. And many believe eventually they will annex the West Bank. Uh, the problem, of course, with annexing the West Bank is it creates a huge demographic crisis for Israel that we're going to talk about as we get to the end of these 13 weeks. Once Israel annexes the West Bank and makes it a part of the state of Israel and they annex Gaza, you have more Palestinians within historic Palestine than you do Jewish Israelis. And so that therein lies the primary problem for a one-state solution. Primary problem for a two-state solution is all of the settlements across the West Bank that make it impossible for there to ever be a separate state of Palestine unless those settlers are removed, 700,000 settlers. The primary problem for a one-state solution is that if Israel annexes all of this and gives everyone human rights, voting rights, makes them citizens, it's no longer a Jewish state. They simply vote the state of Israel out of existence. <coughs> So it's a huge crisis, a huge crisis that Israel has created by allowing settlement of the West Bank and negating the possibility of a two-state solution. So many people feel like Israel has sealed their fate. That within the next 50 to 100 years, the state of Israel simply will not exist because there are too many Palestinians there and they're not going to leave. So as we get to the end of the, this, the, this time together and we begin to talk about what are the possibilities going forward, Remember this issue about borders and about settlements, about what's happening in the land. So this is the map that Michael showed you with the green line around the West Bank, and we imposed the wall on top of that, this barrier. Uh, we talked about the statistics related to that. Some places it's a fence, some places it's a wall, very oppressive wall with uh, towers and machine gun turrets and razor wire. And, um, so that's, that's the map. Last time we looked briefly at the area of Calcilia. So to get your bearings, um, Haifa is up here, Tel Aviv down here. This is Calcilia. You can see it's completely surrounded by the wall right across from Nablus in the northern West Bank. So this is the map I showed you last week about Calcilia. That's, this is the enlargement of this square right here. Calcilia is completely separated by the wall with one access road. And you can see the green line is out here but the current barrier wall fence goes deep into the West Bank because all of these purple areas are settlements filled with Jewish Israeli settlers who are living illegally deep in the heart of the West Bank. So we have this wall around Calcilia. It's one of the earliest areas of construction of the wall. It began in 2002 when the wall started through Bethlehem and now is completely covered by trees and the embankment so it's not even visible from the major Israeli highway. So these two maps are, are perhaps the most challenging part of this entire presentation. If you're not able to see the screen, you might want to move for just a minute so that you can see this. I don't, these won't show up in the PDF because they're interactive maps, but I want you to watch now as we lay out in very vivid detail what's happening in the West Bank. These are from the United Nations. So again, here's the green line, the West Bank. Jerusalem sits in here. <coughs> So we put the green line around. This is the 1949 armistice line, not the 1947 partition line from the United Nations, but this is the armistice line at the end of the war. Then we'll put the roads in, the major roads through the West Bank. Now the checkpoints, and you can see what the checkpoints look like. They're cattle grates. These are 
These are lines where, where Palestinians have to line up sometimes for hours with no restroom facilities inside these cages and turnstiles that are turned off and on by soldiers behind uh, um, bulletproof glass and, in, and metal structures regulating the flow of people. These checkpoints you can see here in red are all over the West Bank. The blue ones are partial checkpoints. Those are checkpoints that are established but not always operational. Then there are some 400 flying checkpoints that pop up various places during the year. So you, you may be deciding you're going to go from Nablus to Ramallah, which should be, should be about an hour trip by car, um, but based on the reports on the radio that day um, or telephone network among Palestinians, find out there are two flying checkpoints along the road, so you have to go around this way. When I was in Calkilia in April, I had a dinner meeting with some um, international physicians in Ramallah, uh, and we allowed ourselves about three hours to make what should have been an hour and a half trip because we had gotten word that the major road would be Calkilia over near Nablus and straight down, but there were checkpoints set up all along the road here. So we had to go the back roads through the villages to get down to Ramallah. That's life in the West Bank as a result of the checkpoints. Then you have the earth mounds where Israel will bulldoze dirt up and create a mound making a road <coughs> impassable. So you can see the black lines all across the West Bank where roads have been blocked by earth mounds. Then you have the road gates. These are metal gates that swing up so that at any moment the military can come in and drop a gate and close off a road with no warning, no notice to the citizens. So you can see those armed gates are all over the West Bank. So again, you plan your day, you plan to move your produce, you plan to go to the doctor, you take your wife in labor, you know the road, you arrive and the gate's down with no explanation, it's locked and there's no way through. So that's reality of life in the West Bank. Or you have these road blocks where they will come in and just put concrete blocks across the road. No rhyme or reason, no explanation as to why the road is blocked off, except that it's to isolate Palestinian communities, to make it very difficult for people to get to work, to get to their lands, to farm. It's all a part of a system of military control and oppression that is making life increasingly difficult for the people who live in the West Bank. Then you have trenches and earth walls where in response to some security concern or some political issue, Israel will come in with a bulldozer and just cut the road and carve a trench so that people can no longer use that road. So instead of driving from point A to point B, which might take 15 minutes, you now have to drive around and take two or three hours. All of this is well documented in the international literature and in the experience of those who visit every year. Then there are all sorts of road barriers and gates along the roads. So you've, you've got um, a total of 542 obstacles as of June 2012. That number fluctuates a little bit. An average of 400 flying checkpoints per month. They come and go from time to time. But you see this series of roadblocks. So here's what's happened as a result of that. Let's look at the West Bank again put in all of the major Palestinian cities. Remember we talked about area A and B. So area A are the major Palestinian cities, the Palestinian municipalities. That's all of these cities labeled in black, many of which you'll, you'll know and recognize. Area B represents the rural areas around area A. So in area A, the Palestinian Authority has responsibility for security and for all municipal services within the cities. In area B, in the rural areas around the cities, the Palestinian Authority has responsibility for all municipal services, education, water, sewage, health, but they don't have any security control. So they can't put their police force into those villages. The security policing is provided by the Israeli military. 
Area C, which is the majority of the West Bank, that's everything here that's not in this light tan, all the Jordan Valley and all the connected areas. Area C is where the Israeli military has full responsibility for all municipal services and security, except for health care, which under Oslo they left under the Palestinian Authority, even though the Palestinian Authority can't access Area C without permission from the Israeli military, and they can't build any infrastructure there. They can't build any hospitals or clinics. So as you notice, Area C is contiguous. You can get from anywhere in Area C to anywhere else in Area C, but you can't get from Area B, A and B to another area of A and B without crossing Area C. So the Palestinians can't move from village to village or from village to city without going across Israeli-controlled area in Area C. So then we add in the 149 Israeli settlements, outposts, and land cultivated by the Israelis. And so you can see now why Area C looks like it does, because it's encompassing all of the settlements into the Israeli-controlled area. Then we add to that the Israeli military closures, the fire zones and military bases. So they've declared basically all of the fertile Jordan Valley as a closed zone for the Palestinians under the control of the Israeli military. So there can be live fire exercises in here, and I'll tell you in a minute about a little village of Jiflik here where they experience that. Then you have the nature reserves. Again, nice idea to, to establish part of the land as a nature reserve, but the nature reserves are not accessible to the Palestinians. This is just another method of taking over the land and declaring this land is a nature reserve, therefore your village can't expand, you can't build on that, you can't uh, increase the area where your population lives or the ground they fertilize. So then if we look at the West Bank barrier, we have these areas that are between the green line, the armistice line, and the wall or the barrier. And again, that highlights why the wall was built the way that it, that it was built. Primarily around East Jerusalem and the Ephrat uh, complex of settlements here near Bethlehem. Then we lay in the restricted roads. These are what are called the apartheid roads or settler-only roads. These are roads that are built through the West Bank that are inaccessible to Palestinians. Remember, cars are marked by license plates. So if you have a Palestinian registered vehicle, you have a white license plate with either black or green lettering. If you have an Israeli license plate, it's yellow. And so the soldiers, the checkpoint, the border patrol, they can immediately look at a car and tell whether or not it's registered as a Palestinian vehicle or an Israeli vehicle. Any car with yellow tags can go anywhere in the West Bank. Now, it's illegal under Israeli law for Israelis to go into Area A, into the Palestinian cities. Many will do so as with human rights organizations and protest groups, but they don't usually take their vehicles in. Uh, but they can drive on any road in the West Bank. If your car is tagged as a Palestinian vehicle with a white tag, then there are certain roads that you simply cannot drive on. So that's the apartheid road system. That's what, as Michael told you, that's what prompted Desmond Tutu's daughter when she visited Palestine to say the South Africans were, were novices at apartheid compared to the Israelis. She said, we never had a situation where there were roads that we couldn't drive on. Rob? And those tend to be newer, better roads. Oh, absolutely. These are all much newer, better constructed roads than the roads that the Palestinians are on. Then you add the closures and the checkpoints across the West Bank. And then you have the effect of the closures. So if you put all that together, the checkpoints, the road closures, the restricted roads, this is what the West Bank looks like. 
this is the end of the two-state solution, right? This is the reality. This is what President Bush called the facts on the ground. This is what we have allowed to happen by continually since 1967 scolding Israel whenever they build a new settlement and then turning a blind eye. And Don't do that. It's not in favor of peace. And paying for it. And paying for it, yeah. <laughs> through, through certain tax breaks and, and donations, absolutely. So you've got this destruction of the West Bank, basically, that makes it impossible to imagine how there can ever be a sovereign state in the West Bank with defined borders and contiguous landmass. So if that's not possible, then you're left with a one-state solution. Everybody live together in peace. Annex the West Bank and Gaza. Everybody gets incorporated. Everybody gets voting rights. Everybody gets to be a citizen. Everybody has human rights. Many people say that's Israel's greatest fear is that the Palestinians are going to turn this from a fight over nationalism and borders into a fight over human rights. And once the Palestinians get together and declare to the world, we're, we're done with freedom, we're through with nationalism, we want human rights. Make us citizens. We will be citizens of the state of Israel. Make us citizens and give us human rights. Game's over. Because you've got already more Palestinians within that landmass than you do Israelis. So once that happens, if it really is a democracy, you can't be Jewish and a democracy. It's not possible, right? So if it is a democracy and everybody gets voting rights, the state of Israel ceases to exist. It becomes something else other than a Jewish state. So what are the primary obstacles within Palestinian culture keeping that from happening? Because that seems like a really obvious solution right. from the outside. The, the primary obstacle is nationalism. It's a desire to be, to live independently and a complete distrust of Israel and the international world, I think. And a recognition that there are going to be generations of prejudice. I mean, we're still, you know, we're still <laughs> 100 years after emancipation, still dealing with an unequal society. So, yeah, I think there's just that fear that many, many people still say we want our own state. And so they're hoping that the international community will apply enough pressure to tell Israel, get these 700,000 settlers out. Or what has been suggested, this is off our topic for today, is if this becomes a Palestinian state, give Palestinian citizenship to the 700 settlers who live there. You have 20% of Israel that are Palestinian, so let 20% of Palestine be Jewish. Makes perfect sense. The problem is these are the most radical settlers in Israel. <laughs> They have absolutely no intention of ever being a part of a Palestinian state. Does the philosophy or, or concept of manifest destiny ever fit into the description of the actions of history, using history as place? Oh yeah, I think very much so. That concept is a part of the theological underpinnings of, of what Israel is doing. That, that manifest destiny as they interpret the biblical promises and. Um, it's ironic to me, we'll come back to that maybe during question and answer next week, but it's ironic to me how much a secular nation appeals to that biblical narrative. And Israel is a secular nation. Don't make any mistake about that. Jerusalem is largely religious, but the state of Israel is largely secular. The majority of the population in Israel are not practicing Jews. Um, they might go to the synagogue on Yom Kippur. Some of them might offer a Sabbath prayer on Friday night, but they are not practicing religious Jewish people. It's a secular nation, and we can give all sorts of examples to demonstrate that, and we'll talk about it next week. I was going to ask, 
around some of our West Bank are um, you know, Palestinian Christians. I think people sometimes oh, yeah. think that most of these Palestinians are I think the, the, the percentage of the population of the West Bank that's Christian now, West Bank and Gaza, is under 2%. Was 4% at one point, years past, much higher. But the, the Christian population is dwindling rapidly. And we can talk about that more later. Good question. So here's the fragmentation of the West Bank, what they call the Bantustans, or the islands, with, with the gray being equivalent to the state of Israel. And then, finally, there are the tunnels. You can see the little yellow, or little circles where Israel has built tunnels under the roads to allow the Palestinians to access their villages. So like in Calkilia, for the people in Calkilia to get to one of the villages that's caught in the seam zone, they built a tunnel under the, under the settler road. So the Palestinians have to go down under the settlers and back up. Or they built a few tunnels to allow the settlers to go down under Palestinian areas and back up so that the communities do not have to, to intersect with one another. So that's the end result. A wall, a separation barrier, fragmentation, and that's what the world says is supposed to be a sovereign Palestinian state. That's the point from which negotiations are beginning. Hopeless. Let me tell you about two physicians. I think we've got time to do this. It will bring into focus this problem with the wall and the barrier. One is a cardiothoracic surgeon named Nazar. <coughs> Nazar grew up in the village of Beit Sahur, which is one of the three Palestinian villages in the Bethlehem district, Bethlehem, Beit Jala, and Beit Sahur. Nazar is a part of a Christian family. His parents sent him away for his education because of what was going on during the intifadas. Uh, his oldest brother came to the States, is now an American citizen, and is an executive vice president for a major international oil company. Nazar went to Germany, got his medical degree in Germany, went on to complete a residency in cardiothoracic surgery, and is now a respected uh, professor of cardiothoracic surgery in Hamburg in, in Germany. I believe, is it Hamburg? Hamburg. Um, Nazar very much, um, Nazar came home and married a young woman from the Bethlehem district, raised his two children as German. They all have German citizenship, so his children speak German primarily, a little bit of Arabic. His brother's children speak English with a little bit of Arabic, and their sister, who stayed and married a local and uh, works for the Bethlehem Bible College uh, in Bethlehem, her children speak Arabic primarily. So already in one generation, the cousins can't talk to each other. You've got uh, two, three that, two that are American, three that are American, two that are German, and three that are Palestinian. Nazar came home to visit. Nazar is considering returning. His parents have been encouraging him. The Ministry of Health has been begging him to come back home, bring his skills to take care of his people. He's struggling with that. He says, I've got a very respected position in Hamburg. I can walk freely in the streets. I'm treated with respect. I cannot do all the surgeries that I want to do. I've got access to all the equipment that I need. And I'm supposed to go back to Ramallah and live under this kind of oppression. And he's really struggling because he wants to do that. His parents are very nationalistic, very committed to Palestine. They want him to come back. So Nazar was home with his family last August on the Bethlehem side of this barrier. This is the Bethlehem checkpoint. Um, says, peace be with you, welcome to Israel. So um, he came to the checkpoint from the Bethlehem side. He had permission from the Israeli government for Nazar and his wife and two children to come into Jerusalem and visit friends. They got to the checkpoint with their papers, with their German passports, and the security officers let his wife and children pass and told him he couldn't pass. He said, why? I have, I have my passport, I, I have my papers from the government. I have permission to cross at this checkpoint. And they said, not today. Not today. No explanation given. 
He said, look, I'm, then he had to kind of start making up stories a little bit. He said, look, I'm a cardiothoracic surgeon. I have a meeting at Hadassah. I'm going there to talk about healthcare. They looked at him and said, we don't want you here. We don't want you here. You go back. So his wife and children were allowed to pass, and he had to turn around and go back to Beit Sahur. Totally arbitrary, totally illegal. He had papers from the Israeli government allowing him to pass. Nothing on his record criminally. The cardiothoracic surgeon, a German citizen. That is real life for Palestinians. And that is what plants the seeds of hatred and dissension among people who are treated that way. Yes. Parents the night that happened. And his father, who was such a gentleman and such a gentle person, was absolutely raging with him. It was so sad to see this man yeah. and the hurt that this man Absolutely. Some of you may not have been able to hear, but my mom was saying she was with Nazar's family when that happened. I was in Gaza at the time last August, but maybe next week when we have time to do Q&A and tell some stories, we'll tell you a little bit more about that family and the injustices that they've all experienced. This is a family physician, a general practitioner in the little village of Jiflik in the West Bank. I'll show you where Jiflik is in just a minute. This is in the heart of Area C, a little town of a few hundred people next to an Israeli settlement and agricultural field. Um, I'll just call this Dr. Mohammed. So many of the doctors are named Mohammed, so I'll call him Mohammed. Mohammed I met a number of years ago when I was visiting Jiflik. Um, he's from the village of Jiflik, was born and raised there, and the way he tells the story, he says, my father took food from the mouths of my brothers and sisters and gave it to me. And what he meant by that was my father diverted resources from the family to me so that I could get an education so that I could come back and support my family. So at that time, there weren't any Palestinian medical schools. All Palestinians had to leave the country. They weren't allowed into Israeli medical schools, a very small percentage. So as many of them did, he left and went to Russia. Many Palestinians went to the Ukraine, Russia, Bulgaria, uh, uh, former Eastern <laughs> Bloc countries. They got scholarships. So he went to Russia on a scholarship, spent a year studying Russian because he had to do medical school in Russia. So the first year was learning Russia. Russian. Then he did six years of medical school. They're on the European system, so six years of medical school. Then a year of internship, so eight years in Russia. During that time, he married and had a son, finished his education and, and lived up to his promise to come back to Jiflik, moved back home without his wife and child to start practicing and to begin the family reunification process, which is quite an ordeal for Palestinians. No trouble at all if you're an Israeli to go abroad, marry, and bring your spouse back. Palestinians, it's very, very difficult. So he started the family reunification process to get permission to bring his wife and son. Obstacle after obstacle, denial after denial. After a couple of years of that, he finally gave up, said, I have to leave, I have to be with my family. So he moved to Saudi Arabia, had his wife and son come from Russia to meet him in Saudi Arabia to start over a new life as a physician in Saudi Arabia because he couldn't get his family into the West Bank. Didn't work. Too many years apart, too much of a culture shock for his Russian wife. She ended up leaving him, going back to Russia with their son. They divorced. He moved back to Jiflik, married a woman from the community of Jiflik, and now has settled in Jiflik with his second wife to fulfill his commitment to his family. These are not exceptional stories. I could tell you story after story after story 
about what goes on for the Palestinians with this process of reunification. I'm going to blitz on through this because I want to get to a couple more things. So this is Jiflik, little village that I was talking about. We're not going to spend any more time talking about that. So let's talk about the refugees really quickly. So we get to finish up with these last two final status issues. According to the United Nations, Palestinian refugees are persons whose normal place of residence was Palestine between 1946 and May 1948 and who lost both their homes and their means of livelihood as a result of the conflict and all of their descendants. So anyone whose normal place of residence was in historic Palestine prior to the war and lost their home and their livelihood is by definition of the United Nations a refugee. There are 4.6 million registered Palestinian refugees in the Middle East and 5.5 million worldwide. You're looking at 11 million Palestinian refugees based on this definition. It's the world's largest refugee population with this asterisk. What's the world's largest refugee population now? The Syrians, right? So 14 million Syrians have fled their country, half the population. They're now the world's largest refugee population. The Palestinians are second. They live in 58 recognized UNRWA refugee camps in Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, the West Bank, and Gaza, and many live outside of those camps. So if you look at a map, again, here is Israel, the Golan Heights. These circles represent the refugee camps, and the size of the circle, this is 100,000, 50,000, 10,000, 5,000. So the largest refugee camps are in Gaza, and in Baqa, next to Amman, there's a large refugee camp in, in um, uh, um, Lebanon. Scattered, the ones in Syria are mostly evacuated. The Syrian, Palestinian refugees in Syria are now double refugees. They've all fled and have moved into the refugee camps in Jordan. So they're refugees a second time. But this is a life for the refugees. The source of the refugees, the 1948 war, three quarters of a million people were displaced as a result of that war. Michael talked about that. 531 homes and villages were destroyed, depopulated, removed from the map. There were 40,000 internally displaced people, what Israel calls the present absentees. Those were people who left their home or their village but didn't leave what became the state of Israel. But they lost their homes and their livelihoods and their bank accounts, and they're not allowed to go back to their villages, but they found themselves still in the state of Israel and became Israeli citizens. 1967 war, another quarter of a million displaced. Since 1967, almost another half million displaced as a result of settlements, the wall, home demolitions, revo revocation of residency rights. This is intentional. Israel's laws are being written in such a way as to make it very difficult for Palestinians to stay in their land or to go abroad and get an education and to come back. And we'll talk a little bit about that later. So these are the 531 villages that were destroyed as a result of the war. So here's the Palestinian position on the bumper stickers. He who compromises on the right of return is not with us. The right of return is the legal, internationally accepted right of refugees to return to their home at the end of a conflict. The United Nations recognizes the right of the Palestinian refugees to return home. It's never going to happen. 11 million refugees. It's never going to happen. And most moderate Palestinians understand that. But they take this position as a negotiating position to say the right of return is on the table. There has to be, most people believe, some symbolic return and then a payment by the Israel and the United States and the European Union to pay these refugees for what they've lost. So the refugee problem will be settled. But in, the Palestinian position is, if, you're not, if you compromise on the right of return, you're not with us. 
Normalization contradicts the right of return. Say yes to the implementation of 194. No peace without return to our homes. The right of return is an individual and collective right. This is the position of the Palestinian negotiators. We start with the right of return. Here's the position of Israel. Former Israeli Prime Minister, 2008, I will never accept a solution that is based on their right to return to Israel in any number. I will not agree to accept any kind of Israeli responsibility for the refugees. It is a moral issue of the highest level. I do not think we should accept any kind of responsibility for the creation of this problem. Okay, that's where we start. <laughs> Israel saying, we're not responsible. We don't accept any responsibility. Morally, legally, it's not our problem. The Palestinians saying, unless all 11 million refugees come home, we won't talk. There's going to have to be some ground in the middle, right? <laughs> but we can't get to the conversation about the five final status issues because we can't even agree who gets to come to the table to talk. All of the negotiations right now are about who gets to come talk. Nobody's talking about the final status issues. Okay, finally, I'm going to run through Jerusalem in about three or four minutes, and then we'll pick up on it. This is what most of us think of when we think of Jerusalem. The iconic views looking east toward the Mount of Olives of the Temple Mount, or the Haram Asharif, as it's known in Arabic. Or the view from the Mount of Olives looking to the west. This is one of my groups uh, a number of years ago. This is Michael, my wife and I, and our group of students and residents. So everybody goes to the top of the Mount of Olives and takes a picture of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is divided and very, very complicated. Population is about 840,000 now, 65% Jewish, 35% Palestinian, because Israel annexed all of East Jerusalem in 1967. According to Israel, Jerusalem is the eternal and indivisible capital of the Jewish people, written into law in 1980 in what's called the Jerusalem Law. It will never be divided again. It's the capital of the Jewish state. According to the Palestinian Authority, East Jerusalem is the capital of Palestine and it's illegally occupied. That's the view of the, of the Western world. According to the United Nations, Jerusalem is a corpus separatum. Based on UN Resolution 181, Jerusalem was supposed to have been an international area because it was holy to three religions. It was not under the authority of anyone. But in 1967, when Israel conquered Jerusalem in the Six-Day War, I'm sorry, 1949, when they conquered West Jerusalem and moved the border to the Green Line, they immediately moved their government from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem against all international pressure and against all international law. They declared Jerusalem their capital. But according to the United Nations, East Jerusalem is still illegally occupied and Jerusalem is ne under negotiation. It's a corpus separatum. Un the European Union takes the same position. They agree with UN Resolution 181. The US position is a little more complicated. <laughs> we speak of the city of Jerusalem in our legal documents the final status of which is to be negotiated, but we do not recognize Israeli sovereignty over Jerusalem. Our embassy is in Tel Aviv. Currently, there are no international embassies in Jerusalem. Now, there have been a few that have gone back and forth, but right now, as of my internet search yesterday, there are no international embassies in Jerusalem. All international communities recognize Tel Aviv as the capital of Israel. Jerusalem is under dispute. We have a consulate in Jerusalem, that is largely responsible for U.S. relationships with the Palestinians. But our embassy is in Tel Aviv. Really interesting what happens then to U.S. citizens born in Jerusalem. If you ever have a chance to look at a passport of a U.S. citizen born in Jerusalem, the place of birth will say Jerusalem. That's all. Congress passed a law a number of years ago trying to change that. 
and to allow people who wanted to put Jerusalem, Israel on their U.S. passports. The Supreme Court overturned that. It's illegal under international law to recognize Jerusalem as a part of Israel. It's still a disputed territory. So no foreign embassies in Jerusalem. There are five categories of Palestinians. Uh, this is one I pulled from a slide on healthcare. We don't have time to talk about. You have Palestinian Israelis, so 20% of Israel's population that are Palestinian. You have Jerusalemites. Those are Palestinians living in the city of Jerusalem. I'm going to tell you more about them in a minute. You have West Bank Palestinians, those who live in area A and B, and those who live in area C. Then you have Gaza Palestinians, and then you have the refugees. All of these have different legal rights, different legal status, different permission to move around the country and to move across borders internationally. These are Israeli citizens. These can choose Israeli citizenship if they want to. Most don't. These have no option of being Israeli citizens. We're going to have to quit. I didn't quite make it. Next time, we'll take a few minutes at the start of our next session to look at some maps of Jerusalem, let you see what's happening with Jerusalem, and then get to a conversation on the legal status of Jerusalem. So we'll do that for about five minutes, and then the rest of the class period will be reserved for questions. Thank you all very much. The, the reality is, none of those people have leverage. Number one. Right. Number two. It's all about race. Number three. Yeah. It, if it's not race, it's money. I can't decide which yeah. it is. But those people don't have a nickel's worth of leverage. No, they don't have any leverage. Right. You're right. Yeah. Good job. All right, thanks. Okay. Yeah, all right. We'll, we'll talk to you later. Yeah. All right. Sounds good. Hey. Justin Weaver, it's, yeah. it'd be interesting with your work that you and your family has done to take that system of maps you did over Israel.